Welcome to our last Sunday service of 2015. I know that sounds incredible that uh, this year has flown by, at least for me. I feel like yesterday we were January celebrating the new year and already here we are uh, talking about 2016. Uh, so, you know, I thought it would be fun. I, it, anyone here enjoy watching movies? I see two, one family. Uh, the rest of us, we read our Bibles, and we go to church every chance we get, and listen to sermons online. <laughs> I, I have a feeling it was just not a lot of interaction there, but that's fine, that's fine. Uh, any guesses as to the top grossing movie of 2015? <laughs> All right, who hasn't seen Star Wars yet, The Force Awakens? I'm going to spoil it for you. No, I'm just kidding. I, 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 this is, look, I'll just quickly run down the top 10. Spectre, number 10, 9, Cinderella. The Martian was only number 8, 224, you know, almost 225 million in gross sales. The Hunger Games, Mockingjay, part 2, seems like part 18. Uh, that was number 7. Minions, number 6. Furious 7 was number 5. Wow, that's, that's an upset for me. Inside Out, number 4. Avengers, number 3. Number 2, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, which is incredible because it, it came out December 18th, and just in a few days, what is it, like a week and a half, 544,573,000 in gross sales. I got it off a website that calculates it to the day. I'm not sure how it does that. Number one, Jurassic World, $652 million in gross ticket sales. You know, if you compare number one and two, boy, <laughs> you know, Star Wars will probably be number one by tomorrow, the way it's going. On the other hand, there were things we call flops. Rock the Casbah. Estimated production, $15 million budget, box office, gross $2.9 million. Ooh, Black Hat, I don't know what that is. Production budget estimated 70 mil, box office ticket sales, 19.4. Wow, that's, you know, if you do the math, like 20 mil, someone lost it. Unfinished business, I don't know. Gem and the holograms, Aloha, Mort Mortakai, Mort Mortakai and Pan. Oh, do you guys like Peter Pan? Uh, that one, uh, just estimated production budget was 150 million. They did have though 120 million in gross ticket sales, but still that's a minus. Look, you know, the reason why I, I, I thought it'd be kind of fun is I, I think sometimes at the end of the year, what we do is we look back on 2015 and we kind of look at the year and we decide was it a hit or was it a flop? You know, did the amount of time and effort and energy and resources that we put into whatever it is, whether it's school, a relationship, or work, did all of that pay off? Was there fruit that we saw in our lives because of the work uh, and does the resources or fruit, or was the payoff greater than, right, the time and energy and money put in? 
And not only that, but we tend to compare what's going on in our lives to other people's lives, right? If, you know, we, we compare it, you know, other movies would compare to Star Wars and, and the amazing success there. And so some people might be, you know, some movie theaters or production teams might think, let's come up with the next Star Wars. And sometimes we tend to do that. We look at other people's lives and we look and we go, well, they did this or they received that or they were able to accomplish that. And there's this comparison that we have Uh, And and so sometimes even when things are going well, it's hard for us because there's always someone who just seemingly had a much better time in 2015. What I want to propose to you today is that as we wrap up 2015 and also as we wrap up our series through 2 Timothy, that in this passage there are a series of questions which I think is a better way for us, all right, to reflect on our past year by asking ourselves these questions, and it's all gonna come from the text and what Paul was doing here at the end of his ministry. And as we ask ourselves these questions, maybe we can reflect on 2015, maybe we can have some prayer requests as we go into 2016. Number one, do we have a Timothy in our lives? All right, that's question one. Do we have a Timothy in our lives? Now I know that's bad grammar, because when I typed it into Microsoft Word, the dreaded green wiggly line came out. But I'm going with it, I like it. You look at 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. And as Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Paul writes this from prison, and he's not saying that Timothy, I'm about to be released. My term is about to be finished. I'm going to go home. I'm going to see you again. That's not what he's talking about when he refers to his departure or when he refers to the drink offering that is his life. Paul is reaching out to Timothy because he sees the end of his life rapidly approaching. He uses figurative language. He describes it in this Grammatically present progressive term of being poured out. He's already being poured out. But that language is is the idea that his life is like this offering. He's doing this work and it's for the Lord. And you know what? It's being poured out, meaning there is this thing that is waiting for him, which was once a possibility, but now it's a certainty. And that certainty is the end. Ultimately, there will be nothing left to pour out. And this idea of the time of his departure has come, it's because this end is imminent, it's near. I mean, yes, there's some time, he's gonna reach out to Timothy, he's gonna ask him to come, he's gonna ask him to bring some things. So yeah, the end is, it's not like tomorrow or this hour or something like that, but it's very near. And so he makes this urgent request to Timothy. That's where we get to in our passage, verse nine. Now, the thing that's crazy about this passage for me, starting in verse 9, is I feel like I'm reading a direct message from Paul to Timothy. You know, in the world of Facebook, there's like your wall, and people post public discussions between you and them on your wall, and it's for the whole world to see, or at least all your friends, right? It's, it's, It's a public matter. If you post a picture on your wall, it's for all your friends to see. And then there's, if you have something that's private, then you send them a direct message, and that's for just the other person to see. Here in 2 Timothy 4, the thing that kind of 
it's, it's surprising is that it seems like what we have is a direct message. It's very personal. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. He reaches out to him. It's this idea, if you've ever called someone, if you've ever texted your spouse and you said, hey, get here now. What are you doing? Where are you? You should be here. It's urgent and it's personal. And the reason being is what we just looked at in verses six to eight. He's realizing that he is going to die. There's no future. And in his final days, I think it's natural for Paul to think about his life, to think about his work. That's what people do at the end. They, they look back. They consider the things that they've spent their time on. They consider the things that they spent their energy on. And for Paul, he realizes it was his mission work, his church work, his gospel work. But the thing is for Paul is that he had invested into this other person, Timothy, to carry on his work even after Paul had gone. It was a pouring out, it was a leading, it was a mentoring, it was a co-laboring and co-working. And so at the end of it all, he sends this message to him and says, come here, and not only do you, I want you here, I want you, verse 11, to bring Mark, all right? Mark's a pretty cool guy, and he's more than that, he's useful, he's good at working, he's great at ministry, there is much work that has to be done, bring Mark, and not only that, verse 13, uh, hey, if you don't mind, can you pick up a few items for me? I left my cloak, I left my jacket. <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? This is in the Bible. <laughs> this is like a direct message, but it's on the wall for some reason. The reality, but, but at the same time, it kind of breaks my heart. In verse 21, he says, winter is coming. And he says, get here before winter. I can only assume that it's going to be cold. The prison cell is not heated. He's a little bit older. He wants his jacket. He wants his cloak. To me, that's, oh, that's heartbreaking. You got one of the greatest men in all of history in terms of what he's been able to do and the work that he accomplished, what, uh, what God did through him for the church, and the picture of him sitting in a cell asking Timothy to bring his cloak. To me, there's something kind of sad about it. He says, bring my books, especially the parchment." A lot have been written about what these books could have possibly been. I'll spare you the analysis and the discussion and say that it was most likely his personal copies of maybe the Old Testament that he had. It was the word. Paul, uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, writes this, quote, he is inspired and yet he wants books. He has been preaching at least for 30 years and yet he wants books. He has seen the Lord and yet he wants books. He had a wider experience than most men and yet he wants books. He had written the major part of the New Testament. Obviously he didn't know it back then. And yet he wants books. He asked for Timothy to come, to bring something very personal for him, something that's gonna be of great assistance to him. 
and maybe even more valuable than the cloak in the middle of winter in a cold prison cell are the works that would remind him of his God. And now I ask you this question, do we have a Timothy, someone that we are also pouring out our life and our soul and saying, I will be there for you, I will lead you, I will serve you. But at the end, when, when we realize that our time for departure has come, we can call upon that person and say, hey, you've got to remain faithful. You've got to continue in the task. You've got to continue the work, the work that we've been co-laboring in we have a Timothy in our lives. And if you don't, and if you didn't in 2015, I want to say, you know what, maybe the thing is, there are certain things that last and certain things that fade away. The things that last are related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we find someone near us and we say, hey, let's do this together. Let's invest in something that lasts. Then at the end of the day, we will be able to share a special moment with that person, right? And reflect, maybe on some of our failures, maybe on some of our successes, but there will be confidence in that this person is going to carry on something that lives longer than you. Do you have a Timothy in your life? Maybe our problem is we don't feel like we have much to offer. Maybe we don't feel like we're in the right place to have a Timothy. We, we, you know, oh yeah, for Paul, I mean, this guy, you know, he's a special character. He had all the, the formal training that was offered to the religious leaders in that time. And then on top of that, he had a personal, miraculous, uh, you know, a appearance and revelation of Christ. He heard his voice. He was blinded by Christ on the road to, uh, uh, you know, his missionary persecution journey, right? And you go, well, that's not me. Well, then I think for 2016, we say what we need to do is train ourselves and equip ourselves. And maybe you just grab someone and say, let's do this together. Next Sunday, we're going to uh, announce it, but we're going we're gonna to offer a, a theology class here on Sundays to learn more about God, to learn more about Scripture, to understand what the Bible reveals to us about who he is and what he desires for our lives. And you know, maybe that's something you sign up for. We're going to launch a church app, and on that app, the thing I'm most excited about is the daily Bible reading plan. If you have your phone in your hands will be what we were hoping you'd read that day in Scripture. Maybe that's what we need to do. And we grab someone and we say, you know what, 2016, we're not going to do this perfectly. We're not going to maybe not even do this well, but let's start it. Let's go on this journey together. Maybe what we need at Crossway is for some of our spouses to look at their spouse and say, you know what, what my husband needs to do <laughs> is to sign up for this class, read this Bible. There are so many precious hours in the week and in the day, and sometimes it's hard. We want help, we want companionship, we want to do different things together, but you know what, there is nothing as valuable as seeing our spouses grow in their knowledge and understanding of Christ. Amen? And sometimes we don't want to do it, but if our spouse wants us to do it, 
Well, husbands, we know what that means. We know what that's like, right? Then we'll do it. Do you have a Timothy in your life? Do you have someone that you are journeying together with that's going to last, that's going to mean something? Do you have someone that you're encouraging and challenging to keep up the good work, to remain faithful? Do you have someone that you could call upon at the end of your life? You say, hey, bring me my cloak. Second question, do we love God or do we love the world? Do we love God or do we love the world? If you look at verse 10, and here's the thing, as as I was thinking about this passage and prepping, one thing that kept coming to my mind, and I could be completely off on this, but I kind of want to say that maybe the person that Paul might have been most disappointed by was Damis. If, if you look at like uh, Philemon 1.24, if you look at Colossians 4.14, you'll find Damis in scripture and he was part of Paul's team. And so, I, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to understand what happened to Damis. He fell in love with the world. And whatever it was that he fell in love with, it seemed better than what he was doing with Paul. That seems obvious to me. You look at Paul, he's in prison. And he's cold. He's asking for his cloak. And go, oh man, so many things seem better than that. No Costco parabolic heater. What am I? In contrast to Damis, Paul loved Christ, right? He loved Christ, fell in love with him. To the point that prison was nothing, I don't want to say nothing, but it wasn't something that was going to change who he was and how he was living his life. It wasn't going to even in the end of his days, it wasn't going to change what he believed in and what he was doing. And I guess the question maybe we should ask ourselves is, do we stand with Paul today? Or do we desert the church because we love the world too much? Are we going to stand in that tradition of Paul passing on his work and and, and energy and efforts and ambition and motivation to Timothy? And then I'm sure Timothy had someone that he, in his life, was training and mentoring and equipping and then said, you've got to live for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure it just went down the line, generation after generation after generation, till somehow it came to us here in Orange County, California, Crossway Community Church. And will we stand with Paul or are we going to say, well, we just love the world too much. Third question, do we remember that Christ is with us or do we get distracted by our present circumstances? Do we remember that Christ is with us or do we get distracted by our present circumstances? I mean, you look at Paul. Verse 14, he had this guy, Alexander the coppersmith. I don't know what he did. Something of great harm. And I think verse 15 gives us a clue into this because he warns Timothy, look, beware of him. 
yourself. It's kind of like, hey, he's going to do this to you like he did this to me. That's kind of the sense I'm getting here. He's, he strongly opposes our message. He's the guy who goes around after we've said something and says, no, that's not right. The gospel, no. We don't need to live for that. Going to jail for Christ, no. Not being afraid of person, no. No, 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 no. And that is the great harm, I think. Maybe even to the point that part of the reason why Paul is in jail right now, not right now, back then, but right now as he's writing then, <laughs> is because of the opposition of Alexander to Coppersmith. I don't know. You've got that going on. You've got the situation where he's alone. I mean, we know from verse 11 that Luke at least is with him. But the reality is that he feels deserted. And my take on this is that, you know, I think he realizes that some of his coworkers and people, they had things to go. They're still part of the ministry. They're going to other places. You've got Titus mentioned. He's going to do his work. There is that. But you've got, on the one hand, like Damis, who, who deserts him. But more than I think any of that is, look, in Rome, there was a church. There were Christians there. Right there, in that place, in that city. And maybe Paul is like, man, where is the church? I'm here. I'm here in prison because of the gospel. Come on, visit me at least. Bring me a cloak. <laughs> Winter is coming. Why do I have to ask Timothy to come all the way and stop by? He's with us. Or do we get distracted by our present circumstances? I mean, you look at Paul. Verse 14, he had this guy, Alexander the coppersmith. I don't know what he did. Something of great harm. And I think verse 15 gives us a clue into this because he warns Timothy, look, Beware of him yourself. It's kind of like, hey, he's going to do this to you like he did this to me. That's kind of the sense I'm getting here. He, he strongly opposes our message. He's the guy who goes around after we've said something and says, no, that's not right. The gospel, no. We don't need to live for that. Going to jail for Christ, no. Not being afraid of person, no. No, 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 no. And that is the great harm, I think. Maybe even to the point that part of the reason why Paul is in jail right now, uh, not right now, back then, but right now as he's writing then, <laughs> is because of the opposition of Alexander to Coppersmith. I don't know. You've got that going on. You've got the situation where he's alone. I mean, we know from verse 11 that Luke at least is with him. But the reality is that he feels deserted. And my take on this is that, you know, I think he realizes that some of his coworkers and people, they had things to go. They're still part of the ministry. They're going to other places. You've got Titus mentioned. He's going to do his work. There is that. But you've got, on the one hand, like Damis, who, who deserts him. But more than I think any of that is, look, in Rome, there was a church. 
There were Christians there, right there, in that place, in that city. And maybe Paul is like, man, where is the church? I'm here. I'm here in prison because of the gospel. Come on, visit me at least. Bring me a cloak. (laughs) Winter is coming. Why do I have to ask Timothy to come all the way and stop by? So there's this, you know, it it really does seem like, and again, he sounds like a lonely person. Even though he made his life about serving others. But in the midst of that, what does he say? Verse 16. In the midst of that, he doesn't say, look, man, this is, oh, man, what a terrible way to end things. He says, look, as my first offense, no one came to stand by me. Well, the first offense, you might, some people have considered that to be an earlier trial. Uh, Modern commentators, and and I'm convinced by their arguments, I think it makes sense to think of that as the earlier part of this present trial that he's going through, kind of like the first initial hearing or something. It didn't, you know, no one was there. Uh, you know, anyone who's been in court or understands the legal process, it's not all done in one session, right? Even if you want to fight a ticket, I went to court to fight a ticket, and all he asked me was, how do you plead? And I said, not guilty. And then he scheduled another day to come back. So, you know, I was like, whoa, I can't just talk about it now. No, okay, all right. Hey, you know, and uh, something more serious that Paul is facing, of course. So at that first initial defense, no one was there. No one stood by him. The church in Rome even didn't show up. So he feels deserted. But he says, look, I don't want to accuse them. I don't want them to be charged of this. Verse 17, the Lord stood by me. He was the one who strengthened me. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. I think what Paul has is a very good understanding of why Jesus came to earth. You know, Kevin DeYoung in his blog, he has a blog, he's an author now, but you know, he, he, st- he started off with this great blog. June of 2009, he has this post titled, Who Do You Say That, that I Am? And he's talking about the person of Christ. And he talks about how in America, Jesus might be one of the most popular people, most well-known, but the problem is that we have all kinds of thoughts and opinions on who Jesus is and what he's supposed to be doing and what he came to earth for. Now, he pulls no punches, so beware. This is Kevin DeYoung. He says, look, in America, we have the Republican Jesus, The Republican Jesus is against all tax increases. He's against activist judges. Republican Jesus is for family values and the right to bear arms. (laughs) I thought that was funny. There's the Democrat Jesus. The Democrat Jesus is against anything Wall Street and anything Walmart. The Democrat Jesus wants to reduce the carbon footprint and basically print more money. There's the therapist Jesus, help us cope with all of our problems, heals our past, heals our scars, tells us how valuable we are. Don't be so hard on yourself. That's therapist Jesus. Starbucks Jesus. Maybe we could just say coffee shop Jesus, because this was 2009. 
Starbucks Jesus drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. <laughs> Open-minded Jesus, Open-minded Jesus loves everyone all the time, no matter what they believe or no matter what they do or no matter what they say, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. Touchdown Jesus. He helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christian athletes. And he also helps determine the outcome of Super Bowls. Martyr Jesus. A good man an unfortunate death so we can feel bad for him. Hippie Jesus, give peace a chance. Imagine if we all got along. Imagine a world without all these man-made religions. All you need is love. Yuppie Jesus, reach your full potential with the help of yuppie Jesus. Reach for the stars and buy a boat. Spirituality Jesus, he hates churches, pastors, priests, theology, and doctrine. Instead, we should all be out in nature finding the God within us while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. Revolutionary Jesus, right? Rebel against the status quo. Guru Jesus, wise, inspirational teacher. Boyfriend Jesus, he will wrap his arms around us and sing to us about his love. And good example Jesus showing us what we're supposed to do day in and day out. It's hilarious. But the reason why this post was so good is it hits at the heart of our expectations for Christ. And when he doesn't meet our expectations, we get hurt, we feel deserted by him, we feel like he's not there in our lives, we feel like he's not been real, and we question, we test, we get sad. Paul could have easily said, there should be jailbreak Jesus. Get me out of here, change my life, drop these chains, make the angels come and free me. But he didn't. Because he knew what Kevin DeYoung wrote about is that there is a Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, who is not another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another miracle worker or magician or whatever, guru. Instead, he was the one that mankind had been waiting for, the son of David, Abraham's chosen seed, who came to deliver us from our sin and the bondage of sin, which is much more intense than even being in a physical, cold prison cell. There was nothing we could do to solve the problem of how we had declared ourselves enemies of God. You can try to read the Bible as much as you want. You can try to come to church as much as you want. You can go to 6-8 as much as you want. You can go to as many Serve the Peoples and Olive Crests and mission trips as you want. You can give as much offering as you want. You can pray and get on your knees and cry out and yell and rip and scream as much as you want. but you will never, ever be able to pay the penalty of our sinfulness. Because that is an eternal penalty. 
And Christ came to do that for us. Amen? And if that's who we understand is Jesus, the Christ of our lives, the Christ of our souls, the Christ of 2015 and the Christ of 2016, then no matter who deserts us, no matter who abandons us, no matter how cold we are, no matter where we find ourselves, we will know and trust that he accomplishes what he came to do. That the word of God leaves heaven and will not return without accomplishing everything that the word of God has desired and accomplished and purposed to do. And so Paul, with all confidence from his cold prison cell, says in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into the heavenly kingdom. In that thing, Christ will never fail. And so maybe as we reflect on 2015 and as we think about 2016, this is something we have to think about. Christ came to take us to heaven, and in that he won't fail. All the other things, I'm not sure, I don't know. The homes, the schools, the kids, the marriages, the friendships, the money, the jobs, whatever, the degrees, all of those things I'm not sure about. What I am sure about and what Paul was sure about is that the Lord will rescue us from every evil deed, from every sin, from every temptation and attempt of Satan and of the devil and of whatever they have tried. He has tried. Jesus will deliver us. You and I, with Christ, are guaranteed entrance into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever.